You know, it was, um, it was 1989 as Americans were making preparations for Thanksgiving. There was a revolution taking place over in Germany. The wall that once separated East and West Germany was finally coming down. The, this wall that divided families and separated a nation was brought to a bunch of crumbling rocks and the people rejoiced. When it fell, the people erupted in cheering and dancing and singing and hugging and celebrating, all because they were finally set free. And from that point forward, they could prepare for their future. And yet thousands of years earlier, a scene just like this one was taking place in downtown Jerusalem. Now, this celebration, however, was not a celebration around a wall coming down, but a wall being built up. When the wall was completed, the people rejoiced with singing and dancing and playing music and celebrating what the Lord had done. As the people celebrated, Nehemiah began to prepare God's people for the future. Let me show you. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. We're going through a sermon series as a church called Leverage, Living and Leading for God's Glory. We've been walking through the book of Nehemiah together as a church, and we've seen in chapters one through six where the people rebuilt the wall. It's an amazing story of how God led his people to do the impossible in a matter of 52 days. Nehemiah chapter six, verse 15, where they completed the rebuilding of the wall. Then you get to Nehemiah chapter seven, where you see the people begin to identify who truly is a Jew. Those who are truly Jewish can live in the city. You get to Nehemiah chapter 8 and you see revival take place. It's through the reading and the preaching of the word of God that the Lord transformed the hearts of his people. And they begin repenting of their sins and celebrating the Lord and, and, and drawing back into a right relationship with him. So much so that it overflows into Nehemiah chapter 9 where the people are confessing their sins to the Lord. And then in chapter 10, they commit to God. God, we will keep your law. We're going to obey your commands. So now that the city has been set, we saw back in Ezra where the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel. We have the wall being rebuilt under Nehemiah. We now have the situation where the infrastructure is in place, the people are in place, their hearts have been transformed by the word, but now it's time to prepare for the future. I want you to see here in the text three ways that Nehemiah prepares God's people for the future. The first he does, way, way he does this is by working for the good of the city. Look at Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. You see, even though the wall was now complete and the, the city was ready to be inhabited, the people weren't moving in. Except for verse 1, a handful of leaders who agreed to come and live within the city, the city of God sits mostly empty. Now, Nehemiah already told us this back in chapter 7, verse 4, when he said the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. You see, God intended Jerusalem to be a thriving metropolis for his glory. And yet, at this point, most of the people chose to live out in the villages. 
It begs the question, what's the point of a big city if you don't have citizens? What's the point of a big church building if you don't have people who are being transformed by Jesus? You see, brick and mortar don't exist in and of themselves. They exist for the good of the people. And so in chapter 11, Nehemiah leads God's people to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Some of the people volunteered, and yet there were others who were drafted. So the Jews, verse 1, cast lots to draft those who would move into the city. Now, the casting of lots, that's a method of decision-making that's sometimes used in the scriptures. In our context, it's kind of like a roll of the dice or a, a drawing of straws. This is a method that was used as a way to discern God's will. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So one out of every ten families that had the lot fall upon them, They'd start packing their bags. And yet, the casting of lots reveals a hesitancy for some people to move there. There were some families who did not want to move to Jerusalem. Well, why? I think there's two quick reasons I want to share with you why the people were hesitant to move back. And the first is this. It's because Jerusalem was dangerous. The last time this city was fully inhabited by the Jews, the Babylonians came in and sacked the city. Even in Nehemiah's day, they still had enemies who targeted Jerusalem because they wanted to take this city down. They still had Tobiah and Sanballat and the Ammonites and the Ashtodites who were seeking to take them down. And secondly, we see living in Jerusalem, it meant less land to provide for your family. You see, you can't easily raise your crops when you're living in the city. So making this move is a total life change for the people. It would affect their wealth and the prosperity of these families to make this move. However, there were some Jews, verse 2, who volunteered to move to the city. This is where they would live. This is where they were going to work. This is where they're going to raise their families. Don't miss this. These people put safety, they put prosperity on the line. They were willing to put themselves in harm's way for the good of other people. Who does that sound like? You see, working for the good of the city was a gospel foreshadowing. Jesus, he is our supreme example of the one who left the glory of heaven and he came to enemy territory. He put himself in harm's way. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. We see here amongst these people who are willing to leave the familiarity of their villages, the comforts of the lives that they had outside of the city, and they are going to the place so they can labor and they can work for the good of God's people and the fame of God's name. We've just heard a story here of a family who said, you know what, we're going to leave what's familiar, we're going to leave what's comfortable, and we're going to go to a place where it's more expensive to have a bottle of water than it is to have a bottle of beer. We're going to go to a community in which male patriarchy and humble godly leadership is absent. 
We're going to go to a place that is potentially dangerous for our kids, but we're going to do it because this is a city worth reaching. This is a city of people who deserve the gospel. They need a fair hearing of the good news of what God has done for us. You see, Jesus voluntarily laid his life down for us at the cross. Therefore, you and I voluntarily lay our lives down for the good of others and the fame of God's name. And what follows in verses 4 through 24 is a list of names of those who made the move into Jerusalem. The list includes sons of Benjamin and Levi and Judah. We have priests and gatekeepers and an assortment of other people. And you see, at times when we start reading these long lists of names, we can get lost, even overwhelmed in the scriptures when we read these long lists. It can feel kind of like you can't see the forest for the trees. And yet, there are multiple reasons why God includes these names that I can't pronounce. Okay, we touched on this when we studied chapter 7, and we're looking at genealogies. You see, lists of names remind us that people matter to God. You matter to the Lord. You see, these long lists of names, they remind us God is faithful through generations. These long lists of names shows us who is in God's family, and genealogies pave the way to Jesus. And even though this text, even though it's not a genealogy list per se, it's a list of people who stepped out in faith and moved to Jerusalem. And God is showing us here that he knows the names of his children. That's what I love about this text is as you see all of these names of those who were willing to sacrifice and move to the city, God is saying, I know your name and I see what you're doing for me. There's something about God knowing your name. Christy and I are teaching our newly adopted daughter English. We adopted Ann from China back in November. And so one of the things I've been teaching her is Jesus loves Ann. And so she'll respond back to me, Jesus loves Baba. Y'all, I'm not going to get through her wedding. It ain't going to happen. I'm, I, just, I just melt when I hear that. But yet it brought great encouragement to my heart. I've been following Christ for 17 years, and yet I still can't get over hearing, Jesus loves you. Those sweet words being reminded that God knows my name, and he knows your name, and he knows what you are doing as you serve him. You see, here we are getting a record of what God did, I'm sorry, what the people did and how God is making record of who did what. And the meager attempts that we have to serve an awesome God, the Lord looks down upon our efforts and says, that's my boy, that's my girl. The Lord loves you. He knows your name and he sees the labor, the work, the service that you provide for his kingdom. And he is noticing that you are working for the good of the city. You're working for the good of his people. But you know, most of the names of the people who worked uh, for the good of the city, those who made the move to Jerusalem, their names aren't listed. They're lumped into a bunch of numbers. Look at verse 8, 928. Verse 12, 822. Verse 18, 284. 
These are who Chuck Swindoll calls the willing unknowns. These are men and women who volunteered to move their families to Jerusalem to work for the good of the city. These are ordinary people who are living and serving in obscurity. We don't have their names. Here we are thousands of years later, and their names aren't even listed in the scriptures of what they did for the Lord. And yet, believers, that's what we do. The majority of the work that you and I do, we do in obscurity. I recently read a book called 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. And as I'm reading this book, I realize I don't know the majority of these people. And yet these are people who've made a significant contribution for the sake of the gospel. And as I think about my life and I think about the people within my life, most of us aren't worthy or have had some sort of significant experience that we would have some sort of biography about us. And here are people who have had that type of lifestyle and they're listed and I have no idea who they are. Isn't that interesting? The majority of the world seeks the fame, they seek the notoriety, but for followers of Jesus, we serve in obscurity. Here are 928 people that are listed in one verse and we don't have their names. Nobody knows what they've done except the Lord. You see, most people have no idea who Jeanette Harris is. But you better believe she's praying for you. Most people have no idea who Virginia Opper is, or Melaine Hussey, or Rosie Darling. But you better believe they're taking good care of your babies. They're teaching your children the gospel. Most people who serve, they do so in obscurity. And hundreds of years from now, no one's going to know my name, and no one's going to know your name. But may they know the name of Jesus, because we came and we invested. And though they may forget us, God doesn't forget us. He knows your name. He knows how you labor. He knows what you're doing for the kingdom. He knows how you're working for the good of the city. You're working for the good of his people. Can I say to you? Don't waste your life seeking the fame of the world. It's vanity. The world's fame, it is brief, it is temporary, and it's fake. It's plastic. You're trying to win the approval of people who don't genuinely love you. They love what you can do for them. And yet we live in a culture in which we want our 15 minutes of fame and we'll do anything we can to be famous in the eyes of the world. And God says, if you want to be great in my eyes, be obscure. Let no one know what you're doing. Have a t-shirt that says, be awesome, but don't let anybody see it. Follow Jesus, but live in such a way that nobody knows what you're doing. Why? Because the world's love does not love you. The world lo world's love loves what you can do for them. Don't miss this. The world's love leaves you empty, whereas God's love in Christ satisfies forever. Don't seek the fame or the approval of the world. Jesus says in Luke 9, 24, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Don't seek the praise of men. Seek the praise of God. You know, as I prepare every week for Sunday morning, I hear the words of 18th century theologian Count Zinzendorf. He says, preach the gospel, die, 
and be forgotten. Is that not who we are called to be as followers of Jesus? Because there's going to come a day in which you and I, we are forgotten by the world, but not forgotten by God. And so we give and we live and we invest our lives so the name of Jesus can spread far and wide. Serving Jesus in obscurity is the way of the cross. We don't seek the fame. We don't seek the glory. We are ordinary people serving and sacrificing for the good of the city. And the heart posture is Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, you work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We work for the Lord. We labor for the Lord. And when we work and we labor and we serve him, we are preparing for ourselves an inheritance that will not fade, spoil, or perish. We have an inheritance that is coming, so let's be faithful. Don't forget this. God always rewards the faithfulness of his people. He always does. Which means it may not happen in this life. You may not get your reward now, but you may get your reward later. But God is faithful. And so be faithful and he will reward your faithfulness. However, we must not forget that we are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, we find the lists of priests and high priests and these Levites. They return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. You have Zerubbabel as the, the leader at the time of these high priests. And then we have a list of all of these leaders to the time of Nehemiah in chapter 12, verse 26. And even though they're separated by a century between the return and the rebuilding of the wall, the text is pointing to how these two groups work together in one united effort to renew the worship of God in Jerusalem. These two groups, the returnees and the rebuilders, they're working to build something that is bigger than themselves. On this side of the cross, you and I, we are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Because someone faithfully preached the gospel and discipled and poured into someone who would in then turn come and disciple us so that in turn we can go and disciple others, we're standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. That's what we see here in the text. It's people saying, yeah, we, we have 100 years of separation, but we're working together on the same team. Question, 500 years from now, who will be standing on your shoulders? How are you leveraging your life? How are you investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus so much so that when you and I are dead and forgotten by the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ marches on because we stand in the gap now. Because we faithfully give our lives towards building something that is bigger than ourselves. When you and I give and invest our lives into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the investment lasts longer than the temporary life that we have in the here and now. So for now, as the people of God, let's labor for the good of the people. Let's work hard for the sake of future generations that they might, Psalm 78, put their hope in God. Let's be a people who invest the gospel so diligently now that the mark of our investment is, is carried over hundreds of years from now because we're faithful to Jesus. Westwood, we are a church that works for the good of the city. I also want you to see number two. 
Nehemiah, he's preparing God's people for the future by celebrating what God has done. He's celebrating what God has done. Look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. See, now Nehemiah, he's gathering the people together. He's going to dedicate the completed wall to the Lord. This is a celebration. This is a, a party of what God has done in and through his people. You see, the dedication ceremony, this is very similar to Ezra chapter 6, when the people dedicated the rebuilt temple to the Lord. Ezra chapter 6 verse 16 says, they, celebra they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Now here in chapter 12, Nehemiah gathers to Jerusalem the Levites, verse 27, the singers, verses 28 and 29, the priests, verse 30. All of these people had been scattered throughout the villages. And Nehemiah says, y'all, it's time to come in. It's time to huddle together. It's time to celebrate what God has done. So in verse 30, the priests and the Levites, they perform these ceremonial washings and they purified themselves. They purified the people. They're preparing for worship. They're getting gussied up for the party. They're setting themselves apart for the sake of holy, pure worship. And then in verses 31 through 42, we see Nehemiah dividing up the choir and the musical instruments into two groups, and he puts them up onto the wall. The first group lines up verse 31 and goes south. The second group lines up verse 38 and goes to the north. But don't miss the significance of this moment. The text is revealing, it's pointing to the valley gate as the starting point of these two choirs. Well, Kenneth, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you remember back to chapter two, when Nehemiah told, had not told anybody what God had put in his heart to do. He's out walking around the city. He's surveying the land. He's looking at the challenges in front of him. And he's trying to figure out how are we gonna rebuild this wall? The one gate he was able to get out of was the valley gate. So here, as they are celebrating what God has done, he is starting the celebration at the very place it all began. But you know what's also interesting? These leaders are up on top of the wall, walking around. These are hundreds of choir members and Levites and leaders in the community who are standing on this wall, and they are walking around it. What's the big deal about that? Nehemiah's enemy says it would never happen. If you think back to chapter 4, verse 3, Tobiah taunted Nehemiah and the people. He said, if a fox goes up on the wall, he will break it down. He's saying, listen, it ain't going to last. There's no way that this work that they're investing is going to make it. And yet here's Nehemiah and the people walking on top of the wall, dedicating it to the Lord, saying, look what God has done. As you think about your life and the tasks that God has called you to, you're going to have enemies who are going to say it can't be done. You're going to have nobles that we see here in the text of, who said, no, 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 we don't need to do this. You're going to have even good intended people saying, why are you making this sacrifice for God? There's going to come a point, whether it's in this life or in the life to come, in which you're going to say, look what God has done. And what happens while they're up on top of the wall they celebrate, they party, 
They're, they're holding this celebration so much so, verse 43, that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You see, the wall had been finished, and now was the time to throw a party. And it was going to be elaborate, it was going to be loud, it was going to be beautiful. But don't miss the bigger picture. Because one day the Messiah would be riding on a donkey through the gates that they are walking on top of. The lion of the tribe of Judah would come through this wall and people would throw down palm branches and they're going to throw down their coats and they're going to cry out, Hosanna to the king. And inside these walls of this city, he would be accused, slandered, mocked, beaten, scourged and sentenced to death. He would then be taken outside of the city where he would be crucified. Don't miss this. Because Jesus went outside the camp, he went outside the walls of Jerusalem and was crucified. Those who put their faith in Jesus, we will one day come into a new Jerusalem. We're going to come inside the, the city of God. We're going to see the majestic new Jerusalem that's going to radiate with the glory of God. And we're going to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what are we going to do? Chapter 12. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to dance. We're going to clap. We're going to celebrate what our God has done for us in the gospel. You see, chapter 12 is not only pointing us forward to a future Messiah who would come and fulfill what God designed those walls to do. It's also pointing us forward to Revelation 7 and 21, where there's a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new place where the people of God get to gather together and we get to celebrate all that God has done for us in Christ. This is the good news that God is offering you here today. As we prepare for the future, the future in Christ looks really, really good. Until then, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we celebrate, we sing, we clap, we celebrate all that God has done for us in Christ. It's just a, an appetizer of what's coming in the new heavens the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Third and finally, I want you to see that Nehemiah is preparing God's people for the future by providing for authentic worship. Look at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Chapter 12 concludes the people seeking to fulfill the scripture's command of how worship is supposed to be done in the temple. This is authentic worship, worship that is supposed to be according to the scriptures. And when it was done, the people rejoiced over God's appointed men who led them in worship. Here we see in the text, these men are seeking to be faithful to the faith that has been passed down to them, verse 45, all the way back to the days of David and Solomon. And so the people brought their tithes, they brought their offerings out of joyful obedience to God's word. So now we got to remember this, the people were not wealthy. These are poor people who came and they invested so much so, verse 47, they're willing to say whatever the cost, 
Whatever it takes, we want to see worship take place in the house of God. And so we're going to sacrifice and we're going to give. We're going to invest because we want God to get the glory through his people. What about you? As you think about your life and how you're investing all that God has entrusted to you, we don't have much time until you and I go home to be with the Lord. So with the time that you have and the resources God has provided, are you allowing the Lord to use you to invest in something that is so much bigger than yourselves? Can I celebrate a win with you uh, for our church? I, I got this email last week uh, from our finance guy, and he said this. He said, for the first time in 14 years at Westwood, giving in the second quarter, April to June, has on average been higher than the previous quarter, January to March. Now, for those of you who are not financial like me, that's a big deal. That's a good thing. What does it mean? It means you're being faithful. It means you're giving. It means you're investing. It means that God, by his grace, is being very generous to us. But how can you and I leverage all the more? How can we invest at a greater level so that the name of Jesus can go as far and wide and deep into the hearts of people who have yet to hear the good news? You see, if you're in Christ, your future looks really, really good. But if you're not in Christ, your future looks really, really bad. And we rub shoulders. We live life with people outside of Christ. Their future does not look good. And so God has intentionally placed you and I in their life to point them to where they can have a better future. A future in a city that is built with walls, that has access points for everybody and anybody who would trust in the name of Jesus Christ.